The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. We've recently had some great conversations with directors whose documentaries are currently available on Netflix. Ken and I spoke with Rory Kennedy about Downfall, her searing indictment of Boeing and its enablers. We also spoke with Andrew Rossi about the Andy Warhol Diaries, in which he reveals the poignantly personal side of the legendary artist. And Ken spoke with Cootie Simmons and Chiki Oza about Genius, a portrait of another great artist, the young Kanye West, as he makes his way from obscurity to renown. You can find these conversations in the Top Docs feed, and you can watch these documentaries now on Netflix. I'm Mike Merrill. Welcome to Top Docs. Today, I'm speaking with Sarah Dosa about her new documentary, Fire of Love, which tells the story of Katya and Maurice Kraft, married volcanologists who documented volcanoes from the late 1960s until they were killed by one in 1991. Like Sarah herself, the film is both smart and playful, and as the title suggests, explores the resonances between their own relationship and their deep love for these explosive natural phenomena. The film premiered at Sundance. It's currently showing in theaters in select cities and will be rolling out across the U.S. over the summer. Given the intensity of the film's sights and sounds, I would recommend trying to catch it in a theater. If you like this conversation, please do follow us wherever you get your podcast. And now my conversation with Sarah Dosa about Fire of Love. Sarah Dosa, welcome to Top Docs. Oh, thank you so much for having me here today. We do appreciate you being here. Sarah, why do you make documentary films? Oh, I could talk endlessly about why I make documentary films. I, I truly feel like I have my dream job. I think I'm endlessly inspired by how humans tell stories and make meaning out of the absurdity and beauty and complexity of our worlds and getting to meet people who can enrich my own life through their stories and connect me up with landscapes, people, ideas I hadn't known before gives me such meaning in my life. I also just adore the collaborative process. I really think documentary filmmaking is a team sport and it's been such a joy to work with the people I've gotten to work with. With, as well as co-create films with the people in my films themselves. It's almost akin to religion for me in terms of just the meaning and the frameworks and the relationships documentary filmmaking has given me through my life. So we like to start often with the beginning of films. You start here, actually behind the credits, we hear kind of wind sweeping behind the credits, and then we land on a Jeep. It's making its way through snow, which <laughs> is a little disorienting. You know, hey, isn't this supposed to be a volcano? We see the Jeep get stuck. Maurice comes out the shovel a little bit. Katya sticks her head out the window. We do arrive ultimately at a volcano, but of all the images that you could choose, why the sequence in particular? Yeah, there, there's a couple of reasons for why we wanted to open with that blizzardy landscape. First is exactly what you said. It, it seems unexpected in a film that's about fire, ostensibly, to be met first with snow. But we wanted to really have the audience understand Katya and Maurice observationally, first and foremost. And we felt like in this footage, you so could viscerally feel their pursuit. You know, they were driving so hard towards something that the audience didn't quite know what. But then once we start to see the clues of the volcano, the black lava fields that they start climbing up and finally they meet their beloved fire. We thought that could really just showcase who they were as people and get the audience just endeared to their desires very early on. We also were intrigued by this idea of 
setting the story in a cold world. We hear our narrator say, in a cold world, all the watches started to freeze. The sun came and went between blizzards and gusts that erased all bearings. We basically wanted to set the tone of a myth. We wanted to establish that despite the coldness of this perceived world, one could find a home and one could find an unexpected way to live and to find partnership. Those visuals helped us to create that mythic landscape and that tone that at once felt very true to who Katya and Maurice were. And that frozen watch, of course, then will be echoed at the end when the frozen watch at the moment of their demise. It also seems to be, and you've hinted at this a little bit, like it's sort of disabusing us of the notion of the tropes of a nature documentary. This is not going to be your standard nature documentary. It's going to be as much about the couple and about their process. It's about volcanoes, sure, but it's also about them, clearly. Yes, absolutely. Katya and Maurice, you know, they were scientists. They were naturalists. One could, of course, make a nature documentary and kind of the more conventionally understood idea of what that means out of their footage. And there have been in, in the 80s and 90s, there, there definitely were some more kind of nature documentary styles. But we wanted to very early on establish the artistic grammar of our film. So the audience would kind of understand what they're getting into. Narration early on helped establish that tone as did the sequence that follows and some of the ways we use music and kind of collage together the found footage, not just of Katya and Maurice's own archive, but of other archives too. But we always wanted Katya and Maurice to be our guides through the film. They were so playful, so philosophical, so idiosyncratic. We wanted it to be led first and foremost by what felt like them. And so they helped set the tone, so to speak, of the film. We see it as a co-creation of, of sorts, even though we couldn't speak with them directly. One of the things I note is that we think maybe of the exploration of volcanoes as sort of this kind of romantic explorer science kind of thing. And you do show some late 18th, early 19th century images from books of volcanoes, but the crafts are exploring in the 1960s. And I think it's really important for people to understand. And I've explained this to my kids, like when I was born, plate tectonics was not science that was fully accepted. It was still being thought through. Can you talk a little bit about what is the theory of plate tectonics and what does it have to do with volcanoes? That's a great question. Plate tectonic theory was first began to be known actually at the beginning of the 1900s, I believe in 1915, I want to say. That's when we started to first hear about this theory, but it really wasn't until the late 60s that plate tectonic revolution, so to speak, happened. And that really did transform the field of geology or sciences and the burgeoning field of volcanology. In essence, it's a theory of continental drift that there are these plates that underlie the earth that move. I'll try and keep it simple, but plates come together, plates pull apart, and the movement of the earth is directly in line with how kind of the forces of volcanism work. For example, when plates pull apart, magma from the core of the earth rises up through layers of the earth, comes out through volcanoes, and that can create new land. However, when subduction of plates happen, when two plates collide, that causes the kind of magma, the core of the earth, to also rise up in a oftentimes more combustible fashion where gas and pressure build and that creates these more explosive volcanic eruptions. It's of course much more complex than that, but that's the kind of quick and dirty layman's interpretation of it. I'm asking this question now because you don't go into a lot of those details. In fact, you don't really fully explain that the pulling apart creates the red and the pushing together creates the gray until almost the end of the film. You delay that point of information, which again, in a standard kind of nature documentary would have been up front, I think. 
Yeah, exactly. We try to mirror the science with the development of their relationship. And so we first introduce what red volcanoes are as they're falling in love, as they're feeling confident about kind of their own relationship with volcanoes. And we do explain kind of how red volcanoes, otherwise known as effusive volcanoes, are formed. And that is when plates pull apart or at hot spots on the ocean floor where the magma rises up and creates new land. But we wanted to not just explain that science, but have that metaphoric echo of they are in this new relationship. They are traversing new territory with themselves. And at the same time, here we are learning about volcanoes creating new land. We're hoping that that could open up that space of creation, of enchantment and wonderment. But also for Katya and Maurice, like red volcanoes, they called them friendly. <laughs> they called them tame. <laughs> Yet these are unpredictable, incredibly powerful forces. So it also reflected their own kind of knowledge and development as scientists that they started to feel fluent in the science of red volcanoes. Later in the relationship, as things kind of deepen and shift, that's where we get into the volcanology of gray volcanoes as this cataclysmic destructive force. Mount St. Helens, for example, was thought to be 25,000 times more powerful than the bomb dropped on Hiroshima in 1945. So that also helps usher in a darker, more destructive part of the story that catalyzes uh, an important shift for them as scientists, as storytellers, as a couple as well. But again, we're trying to establish the scientific basis to make volcanoes be intelligible <laughs> and at the same time have that be very much connected to their love story. We can't possibly cover all of the ways which you do that in the course of this interview, but it's every frame of the film is really making that connection and developing it in a powerful way. So let's talk about another way, which I think you're disrupting kind of a standard nature documentary is by the narration and the choice of narrator. So let's start with a narrator who is Miranda July. She's known for her indie film work, and I think importantly for much, much more. I had a hard time characterizing how she's presenting, but let's say it this way. She's not a graduate of the Peter Coyote School of Documentary Narration, all right? No knock on Peter. He's been doing great work literally for decades. But this is a very different tone. When you hear her speaking, what do you hear? When I hear Miranda speaking, I hear strength and vulnerability. I hear curiosity and wisdom. I hear a keen observational eye. In her own work, I feel like she's so talented at capturing kind of this strange beauty of what it means to be alive and also how kind of transcendent and uh, what a miracle it is to find relationships with each other. And that, for that, just her own background, her own work, her own fascinations, having that kind of infuse her performance for our film, which we hoped would reflect some of those themes. It was such a gift to us. She really elevated the film so much in our eyes and with her delivery and her collaboration. Yeah, she's wonderful. Let's talk about the narration itself. Usually, again, in a nature documentary, and I'm focusing on this because I think one of the things you're doing is breaking these boundaries in a very powerful way, in, in an explosive, disruptive, if you will, <laughs> tectonic shift. We'll get into this. Um, usually, the narration will focus is what's on the screen. My kids are watching the National Parks documentary right now with Barack Obama narrating, and he's explaining what's on the screen, and he's also providing a little bit of scientific background. Here, I'd say the content is much more about the emotional resonance of what's happening for Katya and Maurice. And then in terms of form, I'd say it's much more literary. It's poetic, a lot of lists. And these lists are very evocative lists. They're not scientific delineation. They're things like myths, truths, fragments, questions. And they just open the door. They don't shut it. The writing of their narration was 
probably the most challenging, but also most awakening experience, I think, for our whole team. I should start off by saying, when I first learned about Katya and Marie's craft, I had truly hoped that the whole film would be told through their voices only. However, once we started watching the archives, it was so majestic, but it was very limited. For example, there was about 200 hours of 16 millimeter footage that Katya and Marie shot that came to us without any sync sound. The other footage we were working with, television interviews, Katya and Marie saw a lot of like variety shows in the 60s, 70s, 80s, things like that. They were fabulous archival materials, but they themselves were also limited because there'd be certain cuts in the variety show where uh, we couldn't see their facial expressions after a certain point or Katya Maurice would be saying their greatest hits of their own jokes, or they would be explaining the science of volcanism. However, we wouldn't get much interiority into kind of their beliefs. So we quickly realized we needed a different vehicle if we were going to tell a love story and a character-driven love story, which was very important to us at an early stage. And we thought that narration could be that vehicle for providing not just the plot of their lives, but also give a sense of their internal relationship dynamics, their personalities, their hopes, dreams, their philosophies. This was all information that we gleaned from deep research, book research. They authored nearly 20 books themselves, as well as research we did with people who knew them and loved them. Maurice's brother and sister-in-law, for example, provided some especially colorful stories, as did some of their collaborators. So all of this was filtered through kind of our interpretive lens that we used to approach the writing of the narration. You brought up the lists of things. It was really important that we had a narrator who could prompt and ask questions rather than assume a total omniscient knowledge of Maurice and Katya's lives. We wanted a voice of a narrator who could be curious and reflect Katya and Maurice's own curiosity. We also wanted a voice that could reflect our own experience with hopefully not being self-indulgent, who could call out the pieces and scraps that we were making sense of, the questions we had as filmmakers, trying to interpret the materiality of what they left behind. That was something that like felt reflected too in Katya and Maurice's own lived experience as earth scientists. They were piecing together all the clues from the earth to tell a bigger story about creation and destruction. And so in our, our narration, you hear things like, there's this photo, there's this, we have this, but there are materials that have been lost to time. So we're hoping that our own process could mirror theirs in a way that felt true to them and also true to what it means to excavate the lives of people who are no longer with us. I think a lot of times scientific narration takes this tone of established fact instead of discovery. And I think you really push the other direction. I think that's great. So later in the film, as you discuss how hard it is to time a volcanic explosion, you give sort of a mini lecture on the mechanization of time in the late 19th century, starting with the British rail system and moving on from there. And here the narration is a little more kind of like a standard informative documentary, but the images are not. They're whimsical, even comic. You finish with this black and white footage of a conquistador in full gear, sweeping his hand across the globe. It's like, let me put on all my armor and head into my study so I can plan my world conquest. Can you talk about that kind of juxtaposition? Sure. First, I just have to shout out to my incredible editors, Aaron Casper and Jocelyn Chapu, who are just absolutely brilliant. They took all of these materials and found so many more to tell this multi-layered story. So working with them was such a joy. They also both are such playful, joyful, fun people. They themselves have a wonderful sense of humor. And so their sense of humor mixed with Katya and Maurice's sense of humor. We tried to bring a lightness to a film that also centrally deals with death. In that scene, which we call the railway time scene, um, we wanted to expose the colonial root of the kind of hegemonic understanding of time that 
so many people around the world truly organize their lives by and find as natural and normal. But we wanted to expose the fact that there is this colonial system that has divorced time from the rhythms of the earth. As you pointed out, that there's some humor in the scene. We hope that doesn't undermine the serious nature of kind of the colonial project and deeply violent nature of colonialism around the world. But we were trying to highlight the absurdity of it, the fact that people are hoping that volcanoes can somehow operate on some sort of human timescale, which they just because of the sheer sentience and power that our volcanoes, they cannot. That image that you mentioned, a conquistador waving his hand over the earth was meant to bring in that absurdity. It's followed by, you know, the sentence, a volcano cannot be scheduled. Of course, a volcano cannot be scheduled. But it's that desire oftentimes from governments, from leaders, from bureaucrats, from insurance agents, from this whole kind of matrix of political economic power that attempts to make the earth follow this very specific understanding of time. And so in that sense, we kind of see volcanoes as a rebel against those forces, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, completely. Thank you. You went much further even than I was thinking of. One of the pleasures of watching this documentary, and I'm sure it was the same for those who watched the Crafts documentaries, is to see them both separate and together on film. And Katya, as one of the interviewers points out, she does look quite small, even delicate, although we see evidence that she's actually very robust and strong, throwing around big rocks. I could see, for example, Shelley Duvall playing her, right? And we often see her interacting with the volcanoes and the landscape by watching, photographing off at a distance, maybe running her hand over the rock or sediment. On the other hand, Maurice, yeah, he's a big guy, he has his full face. You can imagine a younger John C. Riley playing him, right? He's often throwing rocks, hitting them with a hammer, picking up lava and making like a lava ball, stepping on the crust of some cool lava and crunching through to the hot lava inside. You go as far as to say that Katya is like a bird and you show her with a bird. Again, there's some... Good humor in this here. And then Maurice is like an elephant seal. And sure enough, we see Maurice toying with an elephant seal, which seems like a terrible idea. Can you talk a bit about how they both work together and they play against each other? It's a little bit of a Laurel and Hardy kind of thing going on here. Yeah, absolutely. First, I, I just love your casting of Shelley Duvall and John C. Riley. That's wonderful. But yeah, it was very important to us as, again, first and foremost, we wanted to tell a love story, a character-driven love story. So it was very important to us to establish their individuality as well as how they came together as a pair. We had to do a lot of research into their personalities, which of course, some of that came through in the visual materials and others we had to, again, learn through talking to people who knew them and loved them. Luckily, we encountered so many stories that gave us what we needed in order to illustrate them with depth and nuance. Yeah, it was very important to for us to show how they came together. And that, of course, was first and foremost through their shared passion for volcanoes and how their love of volcanoes always kind of forced a reconciliation of their differences. Because they both knew how utterly meaningful it was to live in relationship with volcanoes, to be close to the crater as much as humanly possible. And so any kind of difference they themselves had, they had to figure out a way to be back in sync in order to live this lifestyle that was so deeply meaningful to them. But in the telling of a love story, we of course did want to tease out some of their nuances and differences and, and showcase that complexity. And luckily some of that was in the visual record that they left behind. When we first saw the image of Katya kind of ducking and playing and almost like dancing with the birds, we thought that seems so very Katya. She's kind of moving 
in tandem. She's like understanding how the bird flies and it's moving out of the way. And it seemed true to kind of what we understood as this collaborative spirit as how so many people described her. And then when we saw the footage of Marie's like charging at an elephant seal, you know, utterly dangerous. It's what you're always told. If you see an elephant seal, you back away, you do not go towards. And the fact that He's like literally like motioning. He's like bullfighting with this massive beast that could kill him in an instant. It just felt so true to Maurice's spirit. That kind of was really helpful for us. The fact that they left this imprint of their own personalities in their own footage for us to play with. There's also a line in their obituary where it basically says how Maurice used to say that he was, I believe, a sperm whale or like he was often like a giant whale and Katya was a pilot fish. And for us, that was different than a bird and an elephant seal, but also very similar in terms of not just size, but, you know, characteristics. So for us, that was confirmation of, oh yeah, Katya and Maurice agree with our pairing, so to speak. They give us the thumbs up. Yeah, anyways, I could talk on and on, but this love triangle relationship between Katya and Maurice and volcanoes is always what grounded our storytelling. It felt very true to them, their lived experience, what made their most meaningful life. And for us, it was something that was essential to try to tease out that balance and the shaping of the narrative. At about 30 minutes in, the film momentarily changes dramatically, I think. So as we've noted, generally, we've been following along as the crafts move through their lives. Once they've met each other through about 20 years, going to each volcano with the narration behind. Now we sort of break out of that and we go into two back-to-back montages, you could call them. I think you call them music videos. I mean, that in a positive way. So let's discuss these two a little bit because I just think they're fascinating. I love these two. They're some of my favorite work in a great film. The first one up is set to Delita's, and I apologize to our French listeners right now, Je me sens vivre, which basically means I feel alive. Delita is an Italian French singer who had her biggest success, like as the crafts really started their career. And to this, you have an image of a burbling volcano. And then there's like a little bit of an illusion because Katya's red hat pops up and we think we're seeing more lava for a second. And then it's Katya, which I think is that tie, like the person in the volcano or kind of being conflated here a little bit, you know, in a, in a powerful way. There's so much to say about the sequence. What would you say about it? This sequence is one of my absolute favorite in the film. This is a sequence that we were hoping would communicate a feeling of intimacy with volcanoes, a sense of the deep love, the dreaminess of what it feels like to fall in love and the allure, the kind of magnetism. And for Katya and Maurice, the best way to communicate their love with each other is through imagery of volcanoes. <laughs> but they, in their own words, call the relationship volcanic. And in the absence of any footage of them kissing holding hands, going on dates, any of the conventional imagery used to tell a love story. We wanted to use imagery of volcanoes to do that instead. And they give it to us beautifully with how they're capturing these eruptions, as well as Katya just caressing what looks like skin, but is actually hardened lava in Hawaii. You see her like literally popping out of a volcano. She's like in the belly of the earth in her own words. And so I'll just say, we're hoping that this imagery could communicate that closeness and that desire that comes with kind of the hopefully a long lasting love, but surely at the beginning getting stage of a relationship. And that's the point in the film too. When Katya and Maurice start to feel they're most comfortable with red volcanoes, where they're just like in full on falling stage of love with the earth. We hoped not just that beautiful song by Dalida could communicate that, but their own imagery as well. The second piece is, which comes very closely after the first one, is set to a song by Air, the French duo with the song Clouds. And I have to say, when the song first came up, I was like, wow, this sounds like Air, but 
this is a documentary. They didn't buy the rights to air. And then I Shazam, wait, no, this is air. And it kicks off with matching images of Katya and Marie's framed through these circular masks as though we're looking through binoculars at them. And they're both wearing the metal suits, the protective suits. And it's interesting to me because air is a duo, they're French. They often wear the same light colored outfits on stage, not silver. That's more kind of like Daft Punk's jam. But this is a great sequence. I think mainly Maurice running over things. So like, can you talk to me about this sequence? Yeah. So this follows the dreamy, intimate, falling in love stage sequence. And we wanted to like build up upon that with a sense of daring. Of like, okay, we're charging forth in this love and it's a dangerous love, but that's part of its intensity and its draw. We thought that song could conjure that emotional experience very well. We wanted kind of a retro futuristic tone to that scene. And we thought that song could just really beautifully capture that. And our minds, like Katja and Maurice, when, once they started to adorn themselves in the luminized suit, which came about at that time in, in their own relationship with volcanology, they were emboldened to do exactly the things that you just mentioned. They, you know, they were getting even closer to the craters. They were picking up actually like balls of hot molten lava and stepping on the lava being just so daring but it was so exciting and igniting and that kind of music helped to bring that out we almost felt like it was like a dance party that they were having <laughs> with the lava and that that song just really helped to bring out those tones the other thing too is we worked with uh, Nicolas Godin as our composer he is one half of the duo of air and having airs kind of music throughout the film as well as his own solo work just felt like the right kind of appropriate tone that we wanted to set in terms of the musicality of the film itself after these two montages we come back to a recurring theme of the film. In fact, undergirding is probably more accurate. The theme of danger, even fatal danger, that hangs over this entire enterprise. You don't hide this very early on. You talk about the day in 1991 that the crafts will die due to a volcano. And by the way, if you Google a list of famous volcanologists, perhaps an unsurprising number of them did perish this way. It's so complicated, but let me pick out one point of this sort of disquisition on fatality, which is Maurice basically says, yep, I'll probably die doing this, but and it sounds better in the French, but I won't try it. But a better an exciting short life than a long, monotonous one. Whereas Katya, on the other hand, kind of envisions herself growing old with a volcano. She knows there's danger, but she thinks she's going to make it through. Can you talk about the way they share a vision and yet they're disparate in some way here? Katya and Maurice both shared that incredible, strong passion to live with volcanoes, to be in relationship with volcanoes as scientists and as artists and as humans, but they did have different ways of understanding how to live that life. As you just said, Maurice talks a lot in the film about how he just burns to get as close as possible. He describes kind of kamikaze existence in his own words, because he's just so enchanted by volcanoes, gets such a thrill by being next to them, by witnessing them, by experiencing that power. That's like what he wants to do at any cost. Kachi, of course, wants that as well, but she wants to have a long, full life of it, not in a way that is any less bold than Maurice. My understanding of Katya's approach is it's more kind of methodological rather than being totally seduced by this danger and wanting to go towards the danger at all times. It's more about understanding the power of that danger from a scientific perspective so she can have a longer term relationship with volcanoes. But the two of them had to come together. They had to find ways to be in sync. And so this was part of their discussion as a couple. And there's a lot of stories we didn't actually include in the film that we learned through our research about different ways they would make compromises. Um, all kind of negotiating danger as well as what it meant to live their most meaningful life. 
but both Katya and Maurice were utterly brave. And it's important to me, especially to not conflate Katya's more methodological approach with being timid because she was so fearless and so philosophical towards her pursuit. Even if Maurice presents himself as this bombastic, courageous force constantly driving towards the, the crater. In 1980, there's a massive explosion at Mount St. Helens. And the crafts aren't there, but they're surprised both by the size of the eruption. It's much bigger than was anticipated. And they were struck by the loss of a researcher, someone they considered a friend, David Johnston, who provided perhaps the best known images of the moments before the eruption. He believed himself to be out of range, but he was just caught off guard because it's more powerful than expected. And this seems to be a premonition of what will happen to the crafts as well. You say from here on, they dedicate themselves to the gray volcano, the killer volcano, after spending a lot of time with the red volcano. And to be bluntly pragmatic, these volcanoes aren't as obviously and easily photogenic as are the red burbling with lava. And also they're more likely to kill you. Can you talk about this move to focus on the grays? Yeah, so you're right. Mount St. Helens in 1980 did inspire a new moment in Katya and Maurice's own scientific pursuits. They were utterly fascinated by the power of Mount St. Helens. And same thing too for the field of volcanology. The eruption at Mount St. Helens in 1980 provided a moment for the field to really study the science of pyroclastic surges. So it was quite a watershed moment for earth science in, in general. And Katya and Maurice were part of that movement. Through our research, especially with conversations with people who worked with them and knew and loved Katya and Maurice, it was clear that they were drawn towards the danger of this force. It was so incredibly powerful, so dangerous. That was very exciting to both of them, but also the fact that there's so little known about how these explosive volcanoes actually functioned, partially because they were so dangerous. It was so difficult to study them from a scientific perspective. So they really felt like they were uniquely equipped to do this kind of work. Also because they had this incredible expertise in photographing and filming volcanoes. They thought that by capturing imagery of how these pyroclastic surges or, or these gray volcanic eruptions worked, they could help further that study. Because at that time, there were very few people who did want to do that kind of dangerous work. They were part of a group called the Active Volcano Working Group, a particular group of scientists who decided to really study this and embrace the consequences that could come with studying the most deadly force on Earth. I'm heartened that you mentioned David Johnston. He was one of many volcanologists who sacrificed their lives for this work, as was Harry Glicken, who died with Katya and Maurice on Mount Unzen in 1991. Knowing how dangerous it was, Katya and Maurice had to just reconcile. Yes, this is what we want to do. And this is further in line with not necessarily how they want to die, but rather how they want to live. And that was going towards understanding. That was going into the unknown. That's what brought them kind of meaning. You spent a little time talking about the artifice of the crafts in terms of how they construct themselves as individuals, as a couple, but also their filmic craft. You dig into the archives, show alternative outtakes and so forth. All of this is set to the music of Ennio Marconi, whose music we know from the spaghetti westerns of the 60s, a highly constructed form of cinema at the time. Why did you want to show this? You know, some people might say, are you debunking them? What's going on here? For us, when we were playing with that scene, which colloquially my editors and I call that the myth-making scene, we wanted to show the utility of Katya and Maurice's public image and actually how it was instrumentalized to allow them to lead the lives that they wanted to lead, which were being as close to volcanoes as humanly possible. For us, the kind of characters that they played on camera for a very hungry French public who did adore them, it felt not inauthentic to us. And this is something that was confirmed, again, through our research. They were playing true 
just versions of themselves. They were very savvy storytellers in that way. They knew that if people could connect with them, they could then in turn connect with the earth. And that was their ultimate goal was to get people to understand how the earth worked, to understand these volcanic forces later, of course, to really save lives, but also just to have people fall in love the, the way that they did with just the power of the earth. We saw it also as them inscribing themselves in their own myth, you know, on kind of a meta layer, we thought they knew they could die at any moment. So how did they want to be portrayed? They were leaving their own print of themselves in their own materials, but their own cameras and for these other cameras recorded for television about who they really were. So none of it felt false to us. It felt perhaps like that crystallized, higher, magically real truth of Katya and Maurice that, yeah, again, in turn, allowed them to live the life that they so cherished. Yeah, I think it's interesting about Respectful. We talked a bit about the personalities of Katya and Maurice. The other thing is Maurice insists that the volcanoes have personalities. He rejects the kind of easy classification of volcanoes. You show us a little bit, again, these kind of I think early 19th century images of kind of this Linnaean classificatory scheme of putting the volcanoes in their place, just like Linnaeus did with zoology. You seem to support this notion a bit. At the top of the film and the credits, you give the volcanoes a starring role, literally say starring. How did that notion of the volcanoes as individual play into the making of the film? The idea of volcanoes having individual personalities was very important to us, first and foremost, because it was how Katya and Reese understood them. And again, we really wanted the film to feel situated from their perspective and their kind of scientific orientation, as well as in their philosophical leanings. And also it was important for us to make sure that volcanoes were understood as, again, these kind of renegade forces that defied so much of constructed human logic about time, about geography, these conceits that have historically tried to tame the natural world. Volcanoes won't stand for that. <laughs> I don't mean to anthropomorphize them, but Katya and Maurice did see them as defying classifications in this rebellious way, even though the project of science is to find connections, patterns, models, scales, et cetera. There's a conflict there and in that scientific pursuit and at the same time going towards this force that in their own words defied human understanding. But that very conflict was fascinating to us as filmmakers and also felt very true to them to try to tease that out. That's part of why we wanted to bring that kind of into the fore early on. And that's a theme that we hope reverberates through the rest of the film. We talked a little bit about the music in the film, but the sound in documentaries as in film and TV, it's just gotten so good over the past few years. You have some great sounds here. You really capture the burbling and crunching of the red lava. I wondered about how you created these sounds. Like I imagine there was some serious Foley work being done here with celery and tomatoes or something being crunched. Was there some significant work done for the sound? There was, yes. As mentioned earlier, the, the 16 millimeter footage that Katya and Marie shot did not come to us with sync sound. And at first that meant that Aaron Casper and Jocelyn Chapu, my brilliant, incredibly hardworking editors, had to rebuild soundscapes, often pulling from sound libraries that had many volcano sounds, for example, in at a very early stage. We couldn't have edited silently, which is something we very briefly entertained because we thought it would just take so long to build these soundscapes that how are we ever going to get to the picture editing if we're always working on sound, but sound plays such, such a crucial narrative role, especially in a world that's full of unpredictability and so that things might seem silent and all of a sudden, boom, this powerful force is erupting. It was also really important to us to 
bring out a feeling again of the sentience of volcanoes, that these are these alive forces. That's true with our own philosophical leanings as a filmmaking team, but it's also how Katya and Maurice talked about volcanoes themselves. And so while Aaron and Jocelyn worked with very real naturalistic sound, the fact that sync sound actually didn't come with the material opened up a kind of space for play in a way, for subjectivity. For example, Aaron found dinosaur sounds. Of course, not real dinosaur sounds, but in a sound library were cataloged as dinosaurs. She's played with putting some of those sounds into the eruption sounds in a scene of an Krakatau volcano that was erupting in 1979 in Indonesia. And you couldn't quite feel like a Tyrannosaurus Rex by any means, but you could perceive this monstrosity, this like utter beastliness that felt in line with how Katya and Maurice perceived the experience of being there with that volcano. They just went to extraordinary lengths to capture the character of the volcano in that way that was both true and factual and also felt of that kind of mythic spirit that I talked about earlier. We also had the fantastic fortune of working with a sound team in Montreal where we did our post-production and we had a sound designer named Patrice LeBlanc who did also work with a Foley artist to really bring out some of those nuances and that kind of visceral quality to the sound. And we had a re-recording mixer named Gavin Fernandez who just did a brilliant job, especially playing the layers and the directionality. For example, the first pyroclastic flow in 1986 that they are able to capture, it rushes towards them. And the way that Gavin sculpted that feel like you really do feel the rumbling coming at you. They just did an exceptional job bringing the work Aaron and Jocelyn had begun and elevating it to a new level. I'm forever grateful for their hard work and brilliance. Towards their end of their career, Katya and Maurice really began to use their renown for humanistic ends. We see very early on in their courtship, they were briefly drawn into the protest around Vietnam, but sort of rejected that saying they were disappointed in humanity and they turned their sights on the natural and the eternal. But now here towards the end of their career, it seems like they have come full circle. For example, lobbying in vain, disastrously, it must be said, the Colombian government to evacuate vulnerable towns ahead of a volcanic eruption. Can you talk about this turn? Yeah, so Katya and Marish, after they dedicated their lives towards studying the gray explosive volcanoes in the wake of the 1980 eruption at Mount St. Helens, they were part of a group that was monitoring the Nevado del Ruiz volcano in Colombia that was expected to erupt for over a year. Scientists, not just scientists, but also people who lived in relationship with that volcano and possessed the cultural and historical knowledge of that volcano, we're saying something's going to happen here. There's a tremendous amount of political and economic complexity happening in that region at that time. And there were decisions made by the government to not evacuate. And also decisions were made to not necessarily install warning systems, which could have saved the 25,000 lives that were eventually lost. Katya and Maurice felt a tremendous responsibility in the wake of that tragedy because they felt like they should have been able to do more. They felt like they were uniquely positioned to communicate the dangers of pyroclastic surges, which Nevado del Ruiz, the damage from that volcano was understood largely due to what are called lahars, which are these massive mud flows because that volcano itself is a glacier. And so when the pyroclastic surge emerged, it melted the glacier and the glacier rushed down the mountain, just completely flooding and, and tragically burying 25,000 people. But they really believed that they possessed the understanding and the knowledge of, of how these volcanoes worked and that they could have done more to convince the Colombian government and the local leaders to implement these warning signals. The fact that they felt like they couldn't, it really did cause, especially Katya, to question her life choices. But that did push them to realize like, 
yes, we do have the tools to continue this work and maybe we can reshape it to be more effective to not just use our footage and our notoriety as these science celebrities to get people to fall in love with the earth, but also to really save lives. And so that did bring forth that new evolution in their career, which tragically propels them to try to capture the images of the Mount Unzen eruption. They expect a pyroclastic surge to occur due to what they understand about that volcano and volcanoes in that region of Japan. So they are really specifically hoping to capture an image similar to what they were able to capture at Mount Augustine in 1986, but different to provide another angle in hopes of educating the public about how these deadly forces move. And it's that moment that takes their own life in the end, but it was done initially in service of trying to save lives. And you note that shortly after their death, the Philippines government did take their warning seriously and successfully evacuated tens of thousands of people from the shadow of a threatening volcano. What is the legacy of Katya and Maurice Kraft? Oh, I, I think Katya and Maurice Kraft left behind such a vast and profound legacy. I think it spans from what you just said in terms of how their imagery, their advocacy has saved tens and thousands of lives, both at the Mount Pinatubo eruption of 1991 in the Philippines. And it continues to inform people. Their work absolutely continues to inspire and provide the evidence for how dangerous these forces are, but also how to understand them and how to still live in relationship with volcanoes. But I also think that they leave behind such a rich legacy of what it means to live. It's a true hope of mine that people won't focus on their death, but instead see the beautiful lives that they lived. And so much of that was about the pursuit of love. At such an early stage, they knew what they loved. They knew what was deeply meaningful to them. They knew the utter precarity of human life and that it could be gone in an instant. Because of that, that forced them to find what truly felt important and meaningful, and they went towards that. Yeah, in my mind, I hope that legacy will resonate through the ages as well. We'd love to hear what you have coming up next. I have a couple ideas, nothing necessarily in the works, but Fire of Love has very much inspired me to explore the constructedness of time, both the way humans understand time and construct relationships to time as well as geologic time. The next project might have to do with some of these themes. Sarah, thank you for your time today. You've made a wonderful documentary here. It's both informative and also deeply moving personally. And as we've been noting, I think this film marks a tectonic shift in the nature documentary. I can't wait to see what you do next and what others do in your wake. Thank you so much, Michael. I so enjoyed this conversation. I'm so grateful for your attention to detail and your questions you asked are like some of my favorite things to discuss. We didn't even talk about Alsatian accents some point, but I thought oh, yeah. it's, the actress was Parisian, pretty straight up Parisian. Exactly. Oh, that's so funny. We could actually talk a while because we actually had an Alsatian coach to oh, work really? with our actors. But then some people said, no, Maurice and Katya spent so much time outside of Alsace that their French accents started to sound more like international blended French. And also we had some problems trying to nail the Alsatian accent too. And we're yeah. just like, we just want a more natural meaning. <laughs> Do you have a hidden gem, a documentary film that you think doesn't get the attention it deserves? 
There's a brilliant film called Shadowland made by a filmmaker named Nadia Shihab that is absolutely one of my favorite films of the last few years. It surprisingly flew a bit under the radar at film festivals when it first came out and then luckily won an Independent Spirit Award, <laughs> which made me very happy that it got championed. It's such a poignant story of an intergenerational family about art making, about landscape and home. 